ahead of the scripture reading, an example of a New Testament church there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. The birth of that church, Paul commends them as a working church. And by the way, every church should be that, a church busy about the things of the Lord, getting out the gospel. He commends them for their unceasing work of faith, their labor of love, their patience of hope. In the Lord Jesus Christ, he recalls to them how they came to know the Lord savingly, how they had turned from idols to trust in the one true and living God. And so throughout the book of Acts, as we've studied, we see example after example, the record of God establishing local bodies of believers. I want us just as a touch place, as a touching off place, to turn to Acts chapter 2 tonight to remind ourselves of the first, we say first, the pattern established there at the church at uh, Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 in verse 41. And we'll refer to various portions of scripture to speak about this mystery the Old Testament believers did not fully understand that has been revealed to us In these latter days, as the apostles say, then verse 41, then they that gladly received his word, first they heard and received the word of God into salvation, were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls, added unto them, that was to the group that were meeting in the upper room, praying and asking and tarrying as the Lord told them. And they that they continued... Notice one of the earmarks of the New Testament church continuing on and on and on, everlastingly at it. They continued. This means regularly, not spasmodically, not on again, off again. They continued steadfastly. What In what? What were they persevering in? In the apostles' doctrine, all that the Lord Jesus Christ had taught his disciples. He said, many things I have to say unto you. You cannot bear them now, but... When he is come, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, he will bring to mind all that I've taught you. And the Holy Spirit certainly did that, didn't he? And holy men of old spake as they were moved by the the Holy Spirit. And we have the New Testament record. The apostles' doctrine is all that Christ taught his apostles, and we have that record. So that's what they continued in. And fellowship and in breaking of bread... The ordinances of the church we see here on display, baptism in the Lord's table, and in prayers. And you'll find that an earmark of the church all the way through the prayer meetings. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Of course, these confirming signs that this indeed was the Messiah, this was the gospel, this was the truth. And all that believed were together. You see that they're... It were knitted together in a fellowship, in a, a group, if you will, and had all things common because many of them were from various parts of the world who'd come to celebrate Pentecost, did not know that the Lord would arrest their hearts. They came under the influence of the gospel, were saved, and they stayed. And so you have this phenomenon of people who had come there and they stayed without jobs, without places to live. Uh, some did not go back to their homes and And so it was necessary for them to pool resources together just to exist and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, the same group who received the word, had been baptized and joined themselves together, continuing daily and with one accord. We see the unity of heart and mind, the things of God 
in the temple. They began meeting first at Solomon's porch, that covered colonnade there where the, Peter preached. And they began meeting there. And, uh, of course, it grew to the place where they had to leave there in in short order. That didn't last long. That was the first meeting place of the church. And breaking bread, and the Bible tells us they they broke up into smaller congregations from house to house. And did eat their meat with uh, their food together with gladness and singleness of heart. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church... Daily such as should be saved. Well, we see this pattern relived again and again throughout the the New Testament record. And what is this? And how should we approach it and and view it? May the Lord give us light as we study his word. Now, our gracious Lord, we come to your word tonight again asking for your help. We thank you that you have brought us not only to saving faith, but into fellowships of like-minded believers. Two are better than one. And you designed this, this organism, this living body, the church, where we join together to worship and to, to join our resources together, Lord, to further the gospel and to aid one another and to glorify our Savior and to spread your word throughout all the earth, to be light and salt in this dark world. May we ever be this New Testament pattern, Lord, teach us these things, and may we hold them precious and dear realizing our forefathers and those who've gone before us died for these precious truths and liberties. We ask in Jesus' precious name, amen. If you were to be transported back to the first century and could walk the roads of Corinth or Thessalonica or Ephesus or Philippi, in those initial years following the resurrection and the glorification and the ascension of our Lord, it would have been virtually an impossibility to find someone who was called a Christian and not a member of a local congregation of believers. The church has called many things in the New Testament. It is called a flock, a family, a temple, a vine, a body, a bride. We commonly refer to this organism, this group, this, those who are regenerated by the Holy Spirit and, and placed in Christ, in his body, as being part of the church. We use that word church. Ecclesia is the Greek word. And in the classical Greek, it referred to any group or assembly, the senate, a union, a, a group of um, guild people who had the same trade. It was any called out group or people, or local assembly. It was used to refer to any group or assembly. It is the primary Greek word used for church or assembly in the New Testament some 112 times. It comes from the Greek prefix ek, or out, and kaleo, or to call, thus a called out assembly. And the the picture is it was used of a group of citizens whom the, the herald had come through the city streets and called, the king has called a meeting. And they would come out of their homes and their places of businesses and convene these called out people for a specific purpose. It came to be known as any assemblage of people, regardless of its function or how it was gathered together. We as believers in Christ certainly have been called, haven't we? What an apt 
word to describe us as we meet together. We, the called, we have heard the gospel call. It is an effectual call. The Lord told his father and he prayed, I have kept all those that you've given to me. They are thine and they're mine, and I will present them faultless before the Father's throne in glory. Isn't that a wonderful prospect? We may not look like much now, but we will be presented without spot or wrinkle or any such thing uh, before him, without blemish. We have heard the gospel call. The Holy Spirit has roused us from our lethargy and from our death and brought us to repentance and faith in Christ. And not only that, he has grouped us together in families of believers. What a precious thing this is. Those who have been saved are said to be in Christ, literally placed in Christ. What a mystery, and though it is true, placed in him. And all those who are truly regenerated are said to be in the church of Christ. Some refer to it as the invisible church because as the Lord's people gathered today all across the world, we did not gather all in one place or at one time, and yet all are part of the body of Christ, the invisible church, the universal church, other names that you might refer to. They're those who split hairs very carefully over what you call that. But I do know this, all of those who are truly regenerate are in the body of Christ, having been grafted in and placed there, by miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. The major use of the word, though, is is what we use to refer to us here tonight. This local uh, address, this local gathering of a called-out group or assembly, this visible congregation of believers who have been called by Christ through his gospel call and have answered and have been saved and have willingly united ourselves together with other like-minded believers. And I quote again our statement of faith, which says, The Lord Jesus is the head of the church, praise his name, which is composed, his church, of all true disciples, and in him is invested supremely all power of its government. There are no earthly heads of the church. Christ is the head of his church. According to his commandments, Christians are to associate themselves in particular societies or churches or local assemblies. And to each of these churches, he hath given needful authority for the administration of that order. The regular officers of the church are bishops, elders, in other words, pastors and deacons. So you have the church of God in the New Testament at at, at Corinth or the church of Christ at Thessalonica as we look there tonight or at Rome or at Ephesus or at Philippi or as LeGrand referred to here at Glen Iris in this corner of the Lord's Vineyard. Wherever the gospel was preached, wherever it was spread, and by the way, that, that large assembly of people in Jerusalem, the Lord had to stir things up, didn't he? They got comfortable being there, and that was not the plan. Remember what his plan was? There are churches busy writing their mission statements these days. And I thought we had one, didn't you? All this time I thought we had a mission statement to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I thought that was the mission of the church. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what we're to be about and to be doing. And uh, that's the, the, the mission that our Lord has given to us. 
And so wherever the gospel was spread, the, the believers at Jerusalem got so comfortable and they began to, oh, look how this amazing, miraculous thing that has happened here. And they began to appoint leaders and the deacons and, and to carry out the work and to become into smaller groups across the city and the area. And then all of a sudden the Lord did something that seemed horrible or allowed something. He caused a great persecution to arise. And we began to see the martyrs of, of James and the stoning of, of, of Stephen. We, we see the imprisonment of Peter and uh, other than John and the disciples beaten and threatened and a great persecution came and so the church was spread all across guess where <laughs> Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth and wherever they went do you know what they did they replicated what the Lord did in in um, Jerusalem not in their own strength they began to preach the gospel the Holy Spirit called people to repentance and they began to organize churches, as the apostle said, ordain elders in every city, wherever there are groups of believers, they need pastors, they need structure, they need to do things decently in order, they need to do things according to the word, and so that's what we have before us. Sadly, some professed believers today don't appreciate or don't accept or see the necessity of church membership. I remember talking to a lady who was bragging about her large church and she was a dear, dear friend, and she went on and on and on about the church, all that it did and had and all. And she uh, boasted, we have no church membership. And I politely said, well, you've just contradicted yourself. We are a church, but we have no church membership. What a strange thing that is. May I, may I, I may not ought to give the analogy that first comes to mind. It may be too, too brash. It almost reminds me of people saying, we just live together, but we're not married. We've not made a commitment. We just, we're just together, and we are, someone has said, eating at a restaurant and, and leaving and not paying, not being uh, owned up to our responsibilities. But what a, that, that is a, a, a thing that you would have never seen in New Testament days. The New Testament in the Christian faith has no category for those who are not members of a local assembly of believers. The church was designed and created by the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember and keep in mind as we study this, this was not Peter's idea. The apostles didn't say, hey, wait a minute, we've got to, cap we've got to organize this thing because it's going to get out of hand. We've got to control the people. What are we going to do with the crowd? Uh, this was not a logistics move. This was not uh, of trying to capture something and, and do something or have something. No, the pattern was revealed to his people, to his, the apostles. And this is, was something in the mind of God from eternity past. And a precious thing uh, uh, unveiled uh, to his people. The church was designed and created by its head, our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. He told Peter, remember what he told Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I will build my church. You see those personal pronouns, I will build it. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I love that verse. As a pastor, I pray it often and remind myself of it daily and tell the Lord about it on a day-to-day -day basis. There, are, we, there we see in that de declaration of our Lord, first, the church was Christ's idea. I will build it. I will do it. 
without the ingenuity of man, man has tried to add to it and tweak it for the last 2,000 years, but often making a mess. I will build my church. I will give you the pattern. I will give you the blueprint. I will give you the gifts and the graces to do this great task that I've called you to do. And we see that it is his church. Do you see that personal pronoun, my church? Possessive ownership. And we also see with great assurance and great joy tonight that, the, that not even hell or the forces of hell can close the Lord's church. Hitler has tried. Nero's tried. Down through the years, people have tried. They just cannot and will not be able to do it. They cannot stop this master building program instituted and energized by the architect himself, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Christ came to earth to call out his bride, the church, and he died for it. Ephesians 5.25, in that beautiful verse, teaching husbands how we should love our wives. Husband, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself, gave himself up over to and for the church. That he might sanctify and cleanse it, set it apart and make it clean. With the washing of water by the word, you're clean by this word that I've spoken unto you, the Lord says. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. When we read the New Testament, we see a pattern begin to emerge shortly after the resurrection of Christ, a mystery not understood by the Old Testament believers. A mystery is something that, that God has had in mind all along in the Scripture, but has not but chooses to reveal it at a certain time. And it revealed and introduced on Pentecost, after the group of believers met and prayed at our Lord's bidding, and then under the Spirit-filled preaching of Peter, the Holy Spirit convicted the hearts of thousands of people listening to him that day. I've often tried to picture that. You know, it's one of the greatest phenomenons of all time. These people were not coming to listen to a message that day. Do you realize, but the best I can describe it, that Peter was really the first street preacher. Do you, have you ever heard, seen a street preacher? I admire those men who can stand on the street corners and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ without... And people go by wagging their heads and looking at them, and most people looking at them with this disdain. I'll tell you one thing, that's true preaching. When you gather your own congregation and hold them, or by the, not you holding them, by doing the, the will of the Lord and the Lord calling them there, that's what Peter was doing. He stood and began to preach... The crowd was there and began to gather and gather and gather. And only the Lord could do that. This was not some, something where they had planned it and where they sent out flyers even. There's nothing wrong with that. There was no billboards or, or uh, blitz across the city. We've got a preacher coming to town. We've got a big deal going over, over there on, on Solomon's porch. Come there and see it. You can't miss it. You don't want to miss what's going on that day. You're going to hear and see things you've never heard of. That's how men would do it. But the Lord just did it like he does all things to his own pleasure. And Peter did what? Did he sing? Did he entertain? 
Did he tell jokes? There was no jokes in Peter's preaching that day. Ye with wicked hands have taken the darling of heaven and crucified him. He laid the charges clear and plain. And the Holy Spirit was pleased to use the preaching of this unlettered fisherman. The greatest preacher of all times, no doubt, some would say. And the Lord used Peter on that day to institute his church as we know it. Under the spirit-filled preaching of Peter, the Holy Spirit convicted the hearts of thousands. Unbelievable. They repented, believed on Christ, and willingly submitted to baptism. Have you ever heard or seen anything like that in any other place? It has not ever been replicated as it was then, except at Cornelius' and at the, the Samaritans and the Gentiles, but not at that, never in that large number, never in that exact way. And they followed in his steps in the pattern of baptism, identifying themselves with Christ and with one another. Now, as the gospel spread, this was repeated over and over again, not necessarily to this magnitude, but the pattern was the same. Jerusalem, Judea, and all of Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, down to this very day here in Birmingham, Alabama. Throughout the Roman Empire, the world, the known world of that day, and the early church did with, with the Scripture and the Holy Spirit in a hundred years. There was no place where the gospel was not known. The pattern emerged of believers uniting and joining themselves together for prayer and worship, continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, uh, for fellowship and, and in breaking of bread and in prayers, sharing with one another as we've seen here, helping one another, bearing one another's burdens, exhorting, rebuking if need be, encouraging, instructing with gladness and unity, singleness of heart, praising God. And the result was what? The Lord added, continually added to the church Daily, such as should be saved, or those that were being saved, those who'd been ordained into eternal life. Sadly, many today who profess to be believers never unite with a body of believers. I often wonder at that. They may attend, they may even attend regularly, but, but never really officially come under the auspices and the authority of the church that Christ. Uh, set about to build and gave himself for. It's an amazing thing to me. Still other members in, in churches, they stay in churches that have long since departed from the faith. There are mausoleums all around this city today where they gathered and somebody did some little ditty and the pipe organ may have wrangled on and they went through a rigmarole. The Holy Spirit was not a million miles there because Christ's word was not there. There was not, a, uh, in some places, a believing pastor, and I know what I'm talking about. And they went through a rigmarole, and there are true believers in those kinds of places, and I often wonder, they stay for what purpose? Because grandmother's funeral was there, and mother and daddy got married there, and uh, the, the gospel left in 1950 with the last gospel pre preaching preacher, and they've not seen the Lord, if his word, the Holy Spirit even welcomed in, in the place. And, and they, they stay there where they cannot abide or agree with the, the non-doctrine that's being taught or the false doctrine that's being taught, and there are people listening to me tonight, and you know it's the truth. 
And the Holy Spirit is grieved because you're not a member of a living, active, literal body of Christ. Well, what does the Bible say about this? Is this just that Baptist preacher's views? And you know how they are. They have views about everything. This is where we find our pattern in in marching orders in, in the book that we have here. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to, uh, you know, I, I'm not the type preacher that says, turn here, turn here, turn here. First of all, when, I, when I'm sitting under preaching, that wears me out. And so I think that I'd rather just tell you the scriptures than you go in from here to there. Uh, find a text and stick with it. But in this kind of message, we need to visit several portions of scripture. And I want you to see for yourself what the scripture has to say. Now, you may think this is an odd place to turn to in speaking of the church and the authority of the church and church membership and the importance of it. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, well, we see that the, the, the local church was a properly instituted community with a power to exercise discipline. And the background is a man, a, a member of the church, a regarded member of the church was living in open fornication. And the Apostle Paul got news of it. And he's writing back, and I'm paraphrasing, what, what do you mean? What are, you, what are you doing? What are you not, why are you not taking action? And he instructs them as an apostle with apostolic authority. Remember now, the apostle spoke as the Lord in his place. They were speaking when they spoke and they wrote. It was scripture, and we're reading it here tonight. This is not just a letter to the church from the, the founding evangelist saying, y'all need to do something about this. This was the, the apostolic authority as if the Lord was standing in their midst. And by the way, when we read the word of the Lord, it's the same way today. Did you realize that? It's as if the Lord were here reading it himself or giving it to us. And he tells them in, in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, so they did meet at specific times, right? When, the next time you gather together. And my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ... To deliver such an one, he's referring to this man living in open sin, fornication. Deliver him unto Satan. What strong language Paul uses. For the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Paul was saying, if you don't take action... The church will be destroyed. You will have no influence. The Holy Spirit will be grieved, and you'll be just be a clanging brass and cymbal when you try to do anything. None effect, no testimony. The sin not dealt with will spread and infect the entire church. Now, I point out that this group of believers who met at the church at, at Corinth, remember how it was born, birth. They started out next to the synagogue. We started out at the synagogue preaching. They got thrown out, but Crispus, the head of the synagogue, was saved. They moved next door to his house. Isn't that amazing? It's always one of the most amazing stories. That there's a church at Corinth at all is a miracle. But the Lord unusually blessed this, this, this church. And it was made up of the most notorious of sinners. Praise his name. That's just the candidates for salvation. Sinners from all kinds of background. And uh, you're welcome in the church. You can be saved. It doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. We're all, this is not a museum here. This is a hospital of sinners who've been saved and, and are being worked on by, by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But he tells them that they had the authority and the command to exclude from their fellowship, one from their membership, their fellowship, to cut off from him their, the privileges. And I repeat, it is a privilege to be under the blessing of the Lord's church and to, to be partaking of his ordinance with other like, uh, ordinances with other like believers. It's for him not to be under the privilege, have those privileges because of a serious despicable sin this wasn't just a club that paul is talking to is it or a society or a union or any open public meeting we know from chapter 14 that unbelievers attended the services at the church at corinth and so sinners can't be excluded from a church only members can Uh, sinners come to every public meeting of of a church So this professed believer and member was living in open sin, and so the apostolic pattern was to deliver him over to Satan. That phrase meaning, a figure of speech, meaning that he was no longer considered a brother, even though he may be, he's not acting like one, he's acting the opposite, openly and avowedly and continually without repentance. So if he's acting like an unbeliever, you will treat him as such, or he's no longer considered a member of the body of believers, made to live outside the fellowship of the church without its influence or privileges. Why? Because they're mean and cruel. That's what our society today would think and say. Unheard of. You judgmental people. You hypocrites. You you mean-spirited Pharisees. I can just hear it now, can't you? Paul didn't care about any of that. Say what you want to. The purity of Christ's church is at stake, and this man needs to be, if he's genuinely saved, brought to his senses, which the Lord can do, but he charges his church with its, that authority. And the language used throughout the New Testament indicates that there was a, a recognized role of believers who were truly members of local congregations. Now, when you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 12, Paul says, for what have I to do with to judge them also that are without? In other words, he's talking about lost people. I have no authority over them. I can't, I can't go in and say this man living with his, his stepmother, if he's outside the church and lost, I, I have no authority to say anything to him about that. It's wrong, but that's none of my business. Do not you judge them that are within, but them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. This is so foreign today that to even preach it or teach it or read it, people look at you like, you, you, where, where are you coming from? You must be Cro-Magnon. Do you see the terms and their meanings? Outsiders and insiders? What is the difference between the outsiders and the insiders? Outside of what? Inside of what? out of the congregation or of a local church membership. The language that the apostle uses here and over and over again can only refer to a definite church membership of converted people because only such a company would have such authority of the Lord Jesus Christ to judge and conduct and the, 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 judge the conduct and the standing of its members, of professed believers. It's obvious throughout the New Testament times that there was a defined and known list of people, if you will, for lack of better words, so clearly 
and so carefully defined and linked that you could receive into that group, be received into it, or be put out of it. You see how specific the, the language is. Those in the group had willingly and voluntarily committed themselves together into a community of faith to the discipline and to the doctrine and the judgment of that community. There was no such thing as a freelance or individualists doing their own thing, as you see today. That was unheard of in apostolic Christianity. All of this goes back to Matthew chapter 18. Paul didn't think this up. By the way, what did we say to start with? Who's the architect? Who gave the plan? And way back in Matthew 18, the Lord does not go into great detail, but he announces the principles of his coming church. And amazingly, the thing he first tells us about his church is in this area of discipline. Is that, is that not amazing to you? Not its programs, not its ordinances. The first thing that, that our Lord does when he gives the, the, the hint or the forecasting of his coming church is in this very area, Matthew chapter 18. Again, if you'll turn there and remind ourselves of what his teaching there, Matthew 18 in verse 18, just to pick up this verse there, you know the the order there. If someone is offended or has done something to you, go to them. If they'll not hear you, then take some spiritual person in the church and so forth. But I want to get down to verse 18. And all of this is in, in your Bible, in my Bible, which has explanatory notes. It says over verse 15, discipline in the future church. And whether your Bible has it or not, that's what it's referring to. Look there in verse 18. Verily I say unto you, and our Lord is speaking here, whatsoever you shall bind on earth, and I have heard the most ludicrous, idiotic things taught in the name of this verse. Just turn on any, well, I've gone to meddling here, but I'll tell you what it does not mean, and I'll tell you what it does mean. Whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever, I'm sorry, every time I think of this verse, I was at a a funeral preaching, a funeral. Things happen to me at funerals sometimes. One Sunday at, at the end of the service, a couple presented themselves to me. They, they, I was shaking hands. We've got to talk to you. I thought they were, the Holy Spirit had spoken to them. They were under conviction of the preaching of the gospel. And we've got to talk to you. And I was just so thrilled that they wanted to be saved. They didn't want to be saved. They wanted to be married. And they wanted me to marry them. And these weren't teenagers. These were people about our age, a little younger. And uh, I, I know that look on my face was just, you've got to be kidding I, didn't, I had never seen them. They just came and walked, sat in the service, walked through the line. We want you to marry us. And I said, and I, I don't know what I said. I, I just tried, you've tried to find words to answer something like that. And I finally said, well, you know, I'm, I'm not, I can't do that. And they began to argue with me. And give me all the reasons for being uncharitable and so forth. And finally, I just said, wait a minute. I don't know who you are. And he said, I just told you who I am. I said, I still don't know who you are. I don't know anything about you. And we're grown. We're mature. We're, we're not teenagers. We know what we're doing. And I said, well, you can get, in, in short order, you can get somebody else to do it. I don't, I don't have any part in this kind of thing. And uh, I'm not going to do it. And I, lo and behold, about a year later, I was, at, I was at a funeral at the graveside of the cemetery. That couple walked up to me and said, do you remember us? And I thought, how could I forget you? <laughs> Yes, I do. And I, I didn't want to act like, well, yes. And, 
But I, I, I said, yes, I do. Well, we're, we got married. I said, well, I see the rings. I see that you did. And uh, you know, I, I, regardless of what you thought, and we're still married and, and, and so forth. So that was one weird thing that happened to me at a funeral. And, and another one was on about this verse. I was preaching a funeral, and a woman was asked to sing. And uh, somehow she knew that we were, had bought property, the property on 459. And she said, have y'all moved yet? I said, well, no, we're waiting on the Lord and praying and seeking his will and so forth. And I explained, you know, we have the land and it's paid for. And, and she said, we need to bind this. This was right there in the little chair where you sit before you stand up and preach where the piano is over there. In the, in the, the <laughs> Again, I just, what do you say? That, and, and it was about time for the service to start. She said, we need to bind this. If we agree together and bind this, this will come to pass. And she quoted this verse. And wanted me to, to, to bind it. I didn't know how to bind it. I didn't know, you know, with what? Scotch tape, you know. What are, we, what, what are you talking about? He says here, but the Lord means something by it, doesn't he? Not what she, name it and claim it. If we claim it and agree on it, if any two of you agree on something, you can bind it and make it happen. As if you could wrestle with God and, and get him to do exactly what you want him to do. Well, she prayed. I, I was right before the service. I didn't know. I was so flabbergasted. I didn't know what to do. And she bound and prayed and tied it up. And it still hadn't come to pass. <laughs> and she would say it was because I was, oh, ye of little faith. I didn't have enough faith to bind it. Whatsoever you bind, shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. What in the world does that mean? Well, I've told you what it does not mean. In the context, the Bible teaches that when the local church has to exclude a member, what is the context of this unusual statement? If a brother offends you, if you need to exercise church discipline, if it comes the unfortunate uh, and the heartbreaking uh, point that a believer has to be, or a professing brother or sister has to be excluded from the church for some grievous offense, then God will support that decision in heaven. Is that not an amazing thing? Remember, this is his church. He owns it. He loved and gave himself for it. And when the church at Corinth met in official meeting, grieved and heartbroken over the man living in abject sin and dismissed him from their fellowship, did you know that, that heaven put heaven's stamp of approval on the, the decision of that local assembly of believers. What an awesome thing. When the church joins with God and with heaven, and God in heaven backs up his church. Our Lord has put it into the hands of local churches, his own authority and responsibility. Do you remember he told them greater things you will do? He, he said some amazing things to his disciples and to the, the future church those that would follow after him. What treasury he has committed to our keeping. The purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was speaking with someone recently, and I said, if you gathered the preachers of Birmingham together, the professed evangelical preachers, you would have a hard time getting many of them to agree on what the gospel is. We've been entrusted with the treasury of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his work here on earth. 
and that which proves beyond all doubt that the local church must have a, a stable, properly defined and constituted orderly community, not some unstructured, in limbo, fluctuating non-entity with no specific membership. What is that? It's not a church. There is, 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 is much to say about the church, its order and its officers and its ordinances. There's much, much more to say about it in the scriptures. But I want us to close tonight just to touch on a reference or two about joining a local church as is given in the book of Acts. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 9. As we look in the biography of the apostle Paul, he's still Saul at this point. I always feel sorry for Saul here. He's trying to get into a church and nobody wants him. They're scared of him. Acts 9 and verse 26, when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. Do you see that word join, which so many people look at in disdain? It's a good word. It's a Bible word. Paul tried to join the church at Jerusalem. But guess what? They were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. They were wrong. The church can be wrong, can it? I know that some of you thought that when I mentioned that binding of heaven, how could heaven back something that was wrong? Well, they must get it right. And we have God's word here. But we don't know what Paul did, but he in some way intimated that he, was already, he could have come to the public assemblies and they couldn't block him out of that. He wanted to be a member. He wanted to become a full member of the church there, but they were afraid of him. And they believed not that he was a disciple. It'd be hard to believe that Paul was a disciple, or Saul was a disciple. I mean, can you imagine the news about this maniac who is dragging out women by the hair and men and arresting them and, and beating them and, and, and killing people because they were followers of Christ, and now he wants to join the church? Would you want him here at Glen Iris? Would you want some member of ISIS who'd cut off people's heads to come and say, I've been saved by the grace of God. I'd like to become a, a, a partaking member of the church at Glen Iris. Well, we can see, let's not be too hard on these people. That was not too far-fetched of an illustration. But Barnabas took him. Blessed Barnabas. One of the true blue men of the scriptures Son of consolation, sold his property and gave it to the Lord. Everybody wanted to be like Barnabas. Ananias and Sapphira said, we want that kind of notoriety. And they did it for the wrong reason. Barnabas, on the Holy Spirit, sent him with Paul on the first missionary journey. And, and then we see Barnabas and Paul disagreeing over John Mark and Barnabas. But Barnabas took him. Do you know if it hadn't been for Barnabas, Paul would never have been admitted to the the church, the influence, the power of influence. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out of Jerusalem. And because of Barnabas' convincing testimony, the church accepted Paul as a member so we might ask, what was Paul trying to join? What was he trying to become a part of? The Fisherman's Guild? The Tent Makers Club? Saul was not just trying to attend their meetings. The congregations in Jerusalem were so large, it would have been impossible to keep him out of their meetings. I mean, you couldn't do that. 
He was attending the, the meetings, and he wanted to become an open, full-fledged member of the church. Saul was seeking church membership to be officially united to those who had professed Christ. Notice the specific wording here. He assayed, the scripture tells us in verse 26. An interesting word. <clears throat> he tried to join himself to the disciples. The term for that word disciples was a term for the community of believers. That's one of the terms. Those of the way, disciples, there are various names at this point given to the followers of Christ. But only after Barnabas vouchsafed for him, spoke up for him, and vouched for Paul, did the other church members receive him. Do you see how powerful an influence that Barnabas had, how well respected he was in the church, a pillar of the church, we might say. But I want us to look just briefly at the word join there. He essayed to join them here in the Greek, literally meaning to, uh, to glue. I love Gorilla Glue. Have you found out about Gorilla Glue? I have glued doors on to things with Gorilla Glue. I have an antique um, urn that we'd had for years that you put outside to plant things in, and it broke back in two. I just couldn't believe it. It was 100-something years old, and I broke it. You know, you always had to be the one that it, it lasted until I got my hands on it, and it broke. And so I decided I'd heard Gorilla Glue touted and praised, and you know, it hold, you could glue a car and hold it up in the air and all that kind of thing. So I just decided I went and bought me some. Put those, you know, they say cleaned it and all that, but I didn't do it. I just put it on there. And uh, stuck it together. And do you know that urn is still growing strong today? And we have it. I just love Gorilla Glue. I, I use it instead of nails. <laughs> I use it instead of anything. That's what the word means here. A strong, cemented attachment. He essayed to join himself to the congregation at Jerusalem. In the New Testament Greek, it always signifies a very close and uh, interdependent bond. When we read about the prodigal son, do you remember about him? When he went to the far country, he was said to have joined himself. He glued himself to a native of that far country for employment with the, the intimation that he was a dependent, needy employee who pledged to obey his employer and to perform certain duties. Philip is told by the Holy Spirit to join himself, that same word, to the Ethiopian's chariot. chariot. What, what do we get? Get on it. <laughs> get in there with him. Get up there beside him and, and tell him the gospel. By invitation, he, he, he began to, 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 uh, to talk with the man. And so the word is used over and over again. We can give several examples. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all in one, with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them. But the people magnified them, and believers were more added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. What does that mean? They would not, they were scared to join themselves to them. The believers were so highly respected by the people, but there were those who would no longer join them. 
this passage tells us that the crowds turned out into the open air preaching out in such as at Solomon's porch. There was no shortage of people in the congregations, but what it was it that frightened the people from gluing themselves, openly and willingly joining themselves uh, to the church. It was after the incident of Ananias and Sapphira. Can you imagine if that had happened to the church today? in the offering this morning, in the places of business tomorrow morning. Did you hear what happened at Glen Iris Baptist Church yesterday? I don't want to go there. I don't want to join myself to them. There was a difference between being in the congregation and attending and joining, as we will see. May the Lord bless His Word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we marvel at Your Word, the words You use in teaching us the truths of the gospel in your pattern. I pray, Lord, you teach us these things, reveal them to us, and help us, we pray. Lord, build your church. We realize that we are not sufficient of ourselves to think anything is of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. But we do know with all assurity that you're quite able to do all that you've appointed to do. But, Lord, I pray that in this congregation of believers, I pray that you'd search us, O God, and know us. And try us and help us to be a repenting people, a a people ready to forgive and to restore and uh, to stand on your word, but in love and in truth. Oh, bless us, Lord, we pray. Revive us and help us and save the lost and cause those who, who have come to you, who need to follow you in baptism to willingly do so as the New Testament pattern is before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.